dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. Before we get into this week's case, there is a movie out about the Reigns brothers. The movie is called He Went That Way. I have not seen the movie, but you might want to check it out after listening to this episode. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Usually, when siblings engage in crimes, they do it together. It's a family affair, if you will. But not Larry and Danny Raines. They were both violent, they were both killers, and they operated separate from each other. This week's story takes us to the west side of Michigan, to Kalamazoo. We'll start in the 1940s with the birth of the Reigns' children. There were four kids, two boys, two girls. Danny was born in 1943, and Larry was born in 1945. The patriarch of the Reigns' family abandoned them in the early 1950s, leaving their mother to take a job working nights to keep the family afloat. According to one of the Reigns' girls, their upbringing was not happy, nor was it normal. She said there was no, quote, moral training in the home. And today we're going to start with the crimes of Larry Reigns. Larry dropped out of high school in grade 10. This is about the same time he got into trouble for stealing a car. However, the charges were dismissed. In 1962 and 1963, Larry spent some time in the military but he didn't last. According to his brother, Larry was court-martialed three times while in the service. It was toward the end of 1963 that Larry attempted suicide. He was found in a parked car with the engine running and a hose from the exhaust pipe fed back into the vehicle. Larry was saved by a good Samaritan and revived. He was then admitted to the Kalamazoo State Hospital for Psychiatric Treatment on Christmas Eve, 1963. While receiving treatment at the hospital, he was diagnosed with a sociopathic personality. One of his psychiatrists wrote, quote, While in the service, the taunts of barracks companions and the theft of a five-cent bag of potato chips were sufficient reasons to justify an attempt with butcher knives to remove the causal irritant, if necessary, by murder. Or, more plainly stated, he tried to kill someone over a bag of chips. While Larry's behavior was concerning, his stay at the hospital was relatively short. He was discharged on January 6, 1964. Upon leaving the hospital, he moved to a boarding house in Kalamazoo. This brings us to spring 1964. May 30th was a cool but sunny day in Kalamazoo. 
It was nearly 6 p.m. when a state trooper found an abandoned car on the Stadium Drive overpass over U.S. 131 outside Kalamazoo. While looking over the car, he noticed bloodstains on the rear bumper. Now, I want to note that this is a well-traveled area. The car was not found in some remote corner of the community. The trooper used his radio to see if the driver was in custody and the car left behind, but no, the owner, a man named Gary Albert Smock, was not in custody, nor was he on police radar for anything. In fact, Gary Smock was a math and science teacher and state president of the Church of God Michigan Youth Fellowship. He was married to a woman named Thelma, and the couple had two daughters, aged four and six months, in the spring of 1964. They lived in the Detroit suburb of Plymouth. Not long after the trooper radioed in about the car, Thelma Smock appeared at the sheriff's department. She was concerned for her husband's well-being. He'd dropped her off at her mother's the day before and said he'd be back to pick her up, but he never returned. She had to wait 24 hours to report him missing, and that's what she was doing, reporting that her husband was missing. So while she's filing a report, she hears the call come in over the radio, describing the abandoned car. She told the deputy, that's Gary's vehicle. Gary's car was then towed to the Paw Paw Post. A car dealer made a key to open the trunk. Once it was open, Gary's body was found face down. He was wearing a neat business suit with his shoes removed, and his hands were tied behind his back with a piece of clothesline. Gary had been shot in the head with a 22 caliber gun. Police thought it was possible that Gary was killed elsewhere rather than where the vehicle was found. So there's two things of note about the car. One, they knew Gary stopped at a filling station on the 29th. His car was found just a few miles from that station. Also, they knew Gary would pick up hitchhikers. He was the type of fellow that would go out of his way to help and support people. This led police to theorize that Gary Smock had picked up a hitchhiker who turned on him. Police launched a manhunt in an attempt to find the person responsible for Gary's murder. In the early hours of Friday, June 5th, a man named Arthur called police to say that his friend, 19-year-old Larry Raines, had confessed to murdering multiple people, including the schoolteacher that was all over the news. Arthur said that Larry showed him a pistol and said he intended to speak with a priest before taking his own life. Police took Arthur's report seriously and they sent a car to his location. When police arrived on scene, they found Larry Raines exiting the building. Officers asked him if he were responsible for killing Gary Smock, and Larry responded, That school teacher? Yeah, I did it. They asked him where the gun was, and he said, in my pocket. The 22 caliber pistol was confiscated and sent to the state police headquarters for a firearms comparison test. Larry was immediately taken into custody, and rather than asking for a lawyer, he started talking. On the way to the police station, Larry admitted to four additional murders. He asked to speak with someone, not a lawyer like you'd expect, but he wanted to see a priest. Shortly after arriving at the station, he met and spoke privately with a priest for about an hour. Immediately thereafter, he was informed that he had a right to an attorney. Larry waived this right, and then, during a three-hour interview, he confessed to killing Gary Smock and four other people, 
He said the motive in all the killings was robbery. Larry told police that on the 29th, he had plans to hitch a ride to Indianapolis to rob someone there. But his plans changed when Gary picked him up. Gary offered him a ride to Plainwell. When they came to the U.S. 131 cutoff and Gary was going to let him out of the car, Larry pulled a gun and forced Gary to keep driving. Gary drove west on M43 until Larry told him to drive down a wooded lane. Then he forced Gary into the trunk of his own car. Larry got behind the wheel and sped off, but Gary was banging around in the trunk. After Larry got onto the highway, he stopped the car and opened the trunk. He told Gary to be quiet, but he persisted in yelling and pounding. He wanted out of the trunk. So Larry tied Gary's hands with rope he found in the car and then shot him with his pistol. Larry then took the cash from Gary's wallet, which was about $3. He also took his watch and his shoes. He took his shoes because they looked expensive and Larry wanted them. When police found Larry, he was wearing Gary's stolen shoes. Later, Gary's watch was found in Larry's apartment. After shooting Gary, Larry got back in the car and drove to a filling station in Elkhart, Indiana. There, Larry shot and killed the store attendant and robbed the store of around $100. After killing the attendant, Larry drove Gary's car to an area just outside of Kalamazoo and abandoned it. Police later told the public that they had been so busy investigating Gary's murder that they hadn't gotten into looking at the fueling station attendant's murder yet. The police knew the attendant's name was Charles Edward Snyder Sr. He'd been murdered at an Imperial oil filling station along Indiana Route 19, a heavily traveled bypass, just three miles from the Michigan state line. Snyder was a Korean War veteran and had only worked at the filling station for about a month. The employee that he replaced? Well, he quit working there after being robbed twice. During his interview at the police station, Larry confessed to murdering three other people. He didn't know their names, but he said they included an airman at a filling station near Battle Creek, someone at a filling station in Las Vegas, Nevada, and another person at a filling station in Kentucky. He really didn't know many more details than that. While the information Larry provided was at best vague, police were able to piece together that the airman was Vernon Llewellyn LeBen. LeBen was an Air Force veteran and worked at the Custer Air Force Base in Battle Creek, and he was employed at a filling station near Battle Creek. LeBen was saving up for a house and a honeymoon for his fiancée, Nancy. The couple would never have the chance to get married. In addition to working two jobs, LeBen was also taking classes at Battle Creek Community College. Following their interview with Larry, Michigan police contacted authorities in Nevada and Kentucky to let them know Larry had confessed to killing people in those states. They said they weren't sure of the victims' names, but authorities from both states were welcome to come and question Larry. Larry was ultimately charged with murder, and murder while perpetrating an armed robbery in the death of Gary. It doesn't look like he was charged in Charles Snyder's murder. Ballistics tests eventually linked the murder of Gary and the 22 caliber pistol found on Larry when he was taken into custody. And yes, this Gary-Larry rhyming situation is a little bit confusing, but we're almost done with this section, so please bear with me. 
In other evidence, a fingerprint on Gary's gear shift was also matched to Larry. In the weeks following Larry being taken into custody for Gary's murder, Larry underwent two psychiatric examinations. The trial of Larry Raines for the murder of Gary Smock got underway September 29, 1964. The prosecution argued that Larry knew right from wrong when he murdered Gary Smock. He killed Gary as part of a robbery because Larry needed money for his girlfriend. The prosecution was allowed to introduce the fact that while in custody, Larry admitted to shooting not just Gary, but other people. The prosecution had Dr. William Decker, clinical director at Kalamazoo State Hospital, testify. He said that Larry was sane at the time of the murder. The prosecution also had Dr. Clarence M. Schreier, medical superintendent of the Kalamazoo State Hospital, take the stand. He also said Larry was sane at the time of the murder. The defense argued that Larry was of, quote, unsound mind when he killed Gary and that Larry was motivated by an irresistible urge to kill. The defense brought up Larry's childhood, describing it as a constant picture of rejections, from the father who abandoned him to the mother who worked all the time. The defense called one of Larry's sisters and his brother Danny, who testified about the challenges of their childhood and how much Larry hated their father. The Reigns patriarch was operating a service station down in Florida, the career he chose after abandoning his wife and four children. The defense had Dr. Donald Carrick, a University of Michigan psychiatrist, take the stand. Carrick said that Larry didn't know right from wrong when he killed Gary Smock, and that made him legally insane. Dr. Carrick said that Gary presented a father image to Larry, and that's why he killed him. At one point, the defense went to read a psychiatrist's report dealing with Larry's need to get money so he could support his girlfriend. Larry had an outburst in the courtroom. He jumped to his feet and shouted, You're not going to read it. Don't read it. The judge ordered him to sit down and be quiet. Larry said, I'm not going to sit down, and he's not reading that name. You see, at that point, the girlfriend's name had not been revealed inside the courtroom. Only details about her were given, like how she'd been divorced three times and was at least 12 years older than Larry. He had been associated with her since he was a young teen. In a 1986 interview with Larry given to the Detroit Free Press, Raines revealed that starting when he was 13 years old, he would climb out his window at night and go to this woman's home. She was the mother of three toddler-aged kids, and once the kids were in bed, the two of them would listen to music, and eventually they became lovers. When he was 19, he asked her to marry him, and she declined. After being rejected, he punched the wall on the way out of her apartment. At trial, Larry Raines would be found guilty of first-degree murder and murder during a robbery. He was sentenced to life without parole. The judge said the jury reached their verdict without difficulty. With Larry securely behind bars for the murder of father and schoolteacher Gary Smock, authorities continued looking at Larry for the other murders he'd confessed to. The Kentucky State Police spoke with Larry, and he confessed to the April 20th robbery and murder of Charles Charlie Sizemore at F&F Tire Company an all-night filling station about two miles south of Manchester, Kentucky. 
Charlie Sizemore was a World War II veteran and a farmer. On April 20th, he was found on the floor of the filling station. He'd been shot twice in the back of the head with a 22 caliber weapon. While he was rushed to the hospital for medical care, he didn't make it. Larry admitted that, yes, he'd committed that murder and stole about $150. He used the money to finance his travels to Miami, Florida, where he abandoned the car that he'd stolen. On November 9th, Larry was charged with the murder of Charlie Sizemore, but it doesn't appear that he was ever taken to trial for this murder or anyone else's. It doesn't look like he was tied to any murders in Nevada. Later, Larry's convictions and sentences for the murder of Gary Smock were overturned due to the fact that he wasn't allowed to speak to an attorney before undergoing psychiatric tests shortly after his arrests. You see, he confessed to the murders in these tests, and his confessions were introduced at trial. He had asked for an attorney before undergoing the tests, but the request was denied. After the convictions were overturned, Larry then pled guilty to a murder charge and was resentenced to life in prison. Remember, Michigan does not have the death penalty, so that was never an option in his case. Before we change gears and take a look at Danny's crimes, let's get a word from today's sponsor. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. On November 27, 1968, just four years after Larry was convicted of murder, his brother Danny kidnapped a 17-year-old girl named Dorothy. Dorothy was a freshman at Kellogg Community College, and she was a graduate of Penfield High School. It was around 7 p.m., so likely full dark outside, when Dorothy left her job at Cubby's Drugstore in the 400 block of Northeast Capitol Avenue. She was just getting ready to put the car in gear and drive away when a man knocked on her window. Dorothy lowered the window and he asked for the location of the drugstore's rear entrance. She pointed to the door and then raised the window. Again, he tapped on the window and again she lowered it, about six inches. This time, he pointed a gun at her through the opening and told Dorothy to move over. The man got in the car and drove off, forcing her to lie down on the front floor. She complained that it was hard to lie down because she'd had a leg operation, so he allowed her to sit on the front seat. The man said he wanted money, however, he did not rob her. He drove around 10 blocks to the Kellogg Community College service lot, but stopped because he said he'd made a wrong turn. Dorothy was sitting near the passenger side door, and when he stopped, she jumped out of the car and ran. She was screaming for help. The man did not follow her. Instead, he drove away. 
A Kellogg Community College student came to the scene after hearing Dorothy's cries, and upon hearing her story, they called the police. When Dorothy told police the man had left his car in the parking lot near Covey's, they set up a stakeout. Dorothy was able to identify him, and police took 25-year-old Danny Arthur Rains into custody. In February of 1969, Danny went to trial for the kidnapping and assault of Dorothy. He was found guilty of a lesser charge, felonious assault, and was sentenced to serve three to four years in prison. Once he was paroled from this prison term, he took a job as a filling station attendant, which is ironic considering his brother's many crimes. It was while working at the filling station that he met the child who would be his accomplice, 15-year-old Brent Coster. According to Brent, he had a challenging childhood. Brent's mother was schizophrenic, and his father was an alcoholic. Brent eventually made friends with an unnamed teenager who invited him to stay at their house. This is where he met his friend's mother and the mother's 28-year-old boyfriend, Danny Rains. When Danny broke up with his friend's mother, Brent moved with Danny and began helping Danny at work. It didn't take long for Brent to learn about Danny's criminal lifestyle. Danny told Brent he'd been in prison for a few years, and Danny said he would never go to prison again. He would not leave any witnesses to his crimes. Brent said that Danny talked to him a lot about sex. As a 15-year-old boy, Brent was very interested in sex. Brent later said, As a kid, I looked up to him. He impressed me as being smart. And the thing of it is, I had a craving for attention and acceptance, and I... I wanted to be an older person than I was, you know? And he often talked about adventure and about all the different women in the world and everything I wanted to hear. You know, I wanted women. I wanted travel. I wanted adventure. I wanted, you know, the whole ball of wax. And he basically told me exactly what I wanted to hear. Danny also told Brent about murdering a woman named Patricia Hoke. Danny told him he forced Patricia with a knife into his panel truck, then he tied her hands, raped, and murdered her. At first, Brent wasn't sure he should believe Danny about the murder, but then he looked at a newspaper and the details added up, so he believed him. The details of this crime are as follows. On March 18, 1972, Patricia Hoke, a housewife, went with her 17-month-old son to a department store to do some shopping. They didn't return home, and her husband reported them missing. On March 19th, an elderly woman was walking in a field in suburban Kalamazoo when she found Patricia's 17-month-old son wandering aimlessly. The child was dirty and bloody, but when she wiped off the dirt, she could find no injury. She then began to look for the child's mother and found Patricia's body behind a grain elevator. Patricia had been tied up with cord, raped, and strangled. Danny eventually told Brent he wanted to rape and kill another woman. He suggested that they do it together, and Brent told Danny that yes, he'd be in it to do it with him. He later said he was more focused on the sex part and didn't really think about the murdering part until it happened. Danny told Brent that if the opportunity presented itself, they could abduct, rape, and kill a girl who pulled into the service station. Brent said, okay. And that is when Brent and Danny crossed paths with Linda and Claudia. Linda Clark was born December 26, 1953. She was one of three children, and her dad was a truck driver. 
Claudia Bidstrup was born February 12, 1953. Her dad, Richard, was a Chicago police burglary investigator. Linda and Claudia were both 1971 graduates of Steinmetz High School in Chicago. They moved to Duplain and worked as secretaries at Square D Company, an electrical manufacturer in Schiller Park, Illinois. On the night of Wednesday, July 5, 1972, Linda and Claudia were on their way to Ann Arbor, Michigan to visit Linda's brother. At around 1 a.m., Claudia and Linda pulled into the service station Danny and Brent worked at and asked for gas. Brent put gas in the car while Danny popped the hood and secretly pulled one of the spark plugs. After the girls were gassed up, they started the car, but it wasn't running right. So Danny suggested that they pull into one of the bays of the service station. Danny then tried to explain what was going on with the car, but he didn't really know much about cars and the girls picked up on that, so they said they would take the vehicle somewhere else. When they got back in the car, Danny pulled out a knife. Brent, who was on the passenger side, also pulled out a knife. Danny told the girls to get in the back seat. Then he hopped in the driver's seat. Brent got in the car, and they drove around to the back of the service station. Danny then forced the girls into an old van that he owned and parked behind the station. He had a mattress in there. Danny told Brent to go watch the service station. At one point, Brent went back to the van and opened the door, where he found Danny raping one of the women while the other woman was lying next to them with rope tying her hands behind her back. He closed the door and went back to the front of the station. After some time, Danny walked back to the station and basically said it was Brent's turn, so Brent went to the van and sexually assaulted Linda. Next, Danny came around the back with his girlfriend's car. One of the women was in the back seat of the car, and the other was in the back seat of the girl's car. Danny then indicated that Brent should kill Claudia. Brent got in the car, took some rope from Danny, and tried to strangle Claudia. But she was fighting back. He did eventually strangle her to unconsciousness. Brent thought she was dead, but when Danny returned, he checked for a pulse and realized that she was still alive. So Danny grabbed one end of the rope and told Brent to pull the other end. Brent did as he was told. Brent later recalled that when Danny grabbed one end of the rope, he had a look on his face that really scared Brent. Brent thought he needed to get away from the situation. Then, Brent got into the car and strangled Linda. He applied enough pressure that she died. Claudia was then moved to the same car as Linda and put in the back seat. Danny came out with a blanket and put it over the girls. He then got a gallon jug of gas and said that Brent should set the car on fire. He put the gas in the car and Brent took off while Danny stayed at the station. Brent drove around until he found a wooded area. He parked, got out, and poured gas all over the car. He lit a cigarette and put it in a book of matches, hoping that would ignite the vehicle. He figured the car set on fire, so he left, walking back to the highway where he hitched a ride back into town. He called Danny, who came and picked him up. Linda and Claudia never made it to Ann Arbor, and a few days later, Linda's father filed a missing persons report on the women. On July 17th, a motorist found their burned-out car not far from Galesburg off M96. In the back seat, there were the badly decomposed bodies of Linda and Claudia. They were covered with a blanket and still bound with cord. The location where the bodies were found told police that the killers were locals. 
To reach the scene, which wasn't too far from Galesburg, a person would have to have traveled down a country road, along a drive, around an abandoned farmhouse and barn, through an opening in a hedge fence, and then down a single-lane gravel road to the site which was near the Kalamazoo River. Police theorized that the women may have picked up hitchhikers or they were accosted when they had car trouble. There was also the possibility that the killers forced their way into the car as they left a service station or a restaurant, just off the highway or perhaps one of the highway rest areas. Police did eventually become suspicious of Danny for the murders of Claudia and Linda because he'd recently been released from prison, and he worked at a nearby filling station, so police set up a trailer across the street from the station so they could watch him. On August 5, 1972, Danny wanted to go for a ride in his van, and he took Brent with him. The pair drove over by the campus of Western Michigan University. They knew there would be a lot of students and potentially some hitchhikers. The pair agreed that if they saw a girl they wanted to abduct, rape, and murder, then they'd do it. They picked up one girl, but then Brent shook his head, saying he didn't want to hurt her. He later said that he didn't want to hurt anyone again, but he didn't know how to get away from Danny. Brent and Danny let the hitchhiker go, but Danny was mad about it. He kept driving. Then he saw another female hitchhiker. He picked her up and didn't ask Brent his opinion on the situation. The hitchhiker was Pamela Fearnow. Pamela Sue Fearnow, whose nickname was Fred, was born in November 1953. She was a sophomore at Western Michigan University and a 1971 graduate of Hesperia Community Schools. Pamela asked to go to the West Main Mall, so Danny drove out there. In the parking lot, she started to get out of the van, so Danny popped the clutch so she couldn't exit and drove a little further. He stopped the van, pulled out a knife, put it to Pamela's neck, and said, Don't scream, and you won't get hurt. Brent got into the back of the van and put Pamela on the mattress. Danny drove to the Comstock area where they parked. Danny and Brent took turns assaulting Pamela. They had to move the van multiple times while assaulting her because people were around. Danny and Brent kept Pamela hostage in the van for hours. At one point, Danny went to the store and got some alcohol. He and Brent drank and then resumed assaulting Pamela. Later, they tied up her hands and feet. Brent put a rag in her mouth and a green garbage bag over her head. He then tied a rope around the bag to seal it. Pamela suffocated to death. Then Brent put her body a few yards from the side of the road. As he walked back to the van, police pulled up. Brent scurried into the forest to hide while Danny talked to police. Police didn't notice Brent or Pamela's body, and they let Danny go, which is absolutely infuriating, but here we are. The next night, Brent and Danny went back to the area and moved Pamela's body to a wooded area near Murrow Lake. At this point, Brent was completely done with Danny. He talked to Danny's girlfriend and said he wanted to go back to school. Brent went back to living with his parents. Brent's conscience got the better of him, and he confessed to a friend what he and Danny had done. Brent would give a full confession to police. He admitted to helping Danny kill Claudia and Linda, as well as Pamela. He also said Danny had killed Patricia. Danny was arrested that same day, and they led police to Pamela's body. Danny's trial for the rape and murder of Patricia Houck began in February 1973. 
Danny's defense was that he wasn't responsible for Patricia's murder. The defense had a witness testify that Danny was with them during the time of the murder. To rebut this testimony, the prosecution introduced a torn-up piece of paper police found in the toilet of Danny's jail cell. This torn-up piece of paper, when put together, read as follows. Do you know any married woman who could use $500 for taking the stand and saying she was with me on the night of the Hout killing? One who would have a reason to remember that, whatever the reason was, Knight will stand up in court and remember that I had a Band-Aid on my left cheek and told her I scratched it while tearing down a garage? It has to be a Saturday night that I was with her. She must be strong so the cops can't break her down no matter what they say or do. Also, she'll have to go to the newspaper office and look up the past issues for the date and all the back pictures of me so she will know me when she sees me. Let me know as soon as you can as all visits and phone calls in New Jail are to be taped. If you know of anyone, at least get me her address so I can handle the mail through Contos. The money will come when my feet hit the street. Not surprisingly, on March 2nd, the jury found Danny guilty of second-degree murder and first-degree murder in the rape slang. In July of 73, Danny went on trial for the murder of Patricia Fiernau. Brent took the stand to testify that he and Danny acted together. Lee Keaton, an inmate at the county jail, testified that Danny had asked Lee if he knew of anyone who would take a contract to kill Brent Coster. Danny thought he could beat the charges if Brent was gone. Richard Fee testified that Danny attempted to get him to testify that Brent was lying about Danny's involvement because Brent made a deal with prosecutors. Richard further testified that Danny confessed to murdering Pamela. Danny said he picked her up hitchhiking and she asked to go to the West Main Mall. Richard testified. He told me he drove to the West Main Mall, and Brent and the girl wanted to go to the lake, so Danny drove them out to the lake, and when he got to the lake, Brent asked Danny if he would go down to the store and get some beer, so Danny went down to the store. When he got back with the beer, he asked Brent where the girl was, and Brent said he had killed her. Danny would be found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. On August 9th, Danny pleaded no contest to the second-degree murder charges for the deaths of Linda and Claudia. He was sentenced to life in prison for each count. On June 11, 1975, a now 18-year-old Brent Coster pleaded guilty to one count of second-degree murder in the death of Linda Clark. On July 21st, Brent was sentenced to life, although he had parole eligibility after serving 10 years. The judge recommended that he never get parole and said that Brent and Danny's crimes were, quote, the types of crimes that give ammunition to those people who wish to restore the death penalty. By the end of 1975, both brothers and Brent Coster are in prison for murder, where they will remain for decades. While in prison, Larry changed his name to Monk Steppenwolf. At a parole hearing in September of 2020, Brent told the parole board, If I had not met Danny Raines, I know in my heart I would never have become involved in crimes like this. Brent was paroled on January 21, 2021. He was 64 years old and had been behind bars for 48 years. Kalamazoo County Prosecuting Attorney Jeff Getting said in a statement that he was, quote, very troubled by the Michigan Department of Corrections choosing to release an admitted serial rapist, serial murderer. 
He said that he and his staff will be reviewing the parole board's decision to determine what options we have. Getting said, in my opinion, the risk to our community is simply unacceptable. I'm not aware of another person with such a horrific history having ever been released anywhere. Brent Coster will remain on supervised parole until January of 2025. Larry Raines died in prison in November of 2023 when he was 78 years old. Danny Raines died in prison in January of 2022 at age 78. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. Be safe.